Section twenty of the Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. Chapter twelve: The Wisdom of Coleridge. One Coleridge as critic. Coleridge was the thirteenth child of a rather queer clergyman the rev john coleridge was queer enough in having thirteen children he was queerer still in being the author of a latin grammar in which he renamed the ablative the quali quare quidditive case coleridge was thus born not only with an unlucky number but trailing clouds of definitions he was in some respects the unluckiest of all englishmen of literary genius he leaves on us an impression of failure as no other writer of the same stature does the impression may not be justified there are few writers who would not prefer the magnificent failure of a coleridge to their own little molehill of success coleridge was a failure in comparison not with ordinary men but only with the immense shadow of his own genius his imperfection is the imperfection of a demigod charles lamb summed up the truth about his genius as well as about his character in that final phrase an archangel a little damaged this was said at a time when the archangel was much more than a little damaged by the habit of laudanum but even then lamb wrote his face when he repeats his verses hath its ancient glory most of coleridge's great contemporaries were aware of that glory even those who were afterwards to be counted among his revellers such as hazlitt and de quincey had known what it was to be disciples at the feet of this inspired ruin they spoke not only of his mind but even of his physical characteristics his voice and his hair as though these belonged to the one man of his time whose food was ambrosia even as a boy at christ's hospital according to lamb he used to make the casual passer through the cloisters stand still entranced with admiration while he weighed the disproportion between the speech and the garb of the young mirandola to hear thee unfold in thy deep and sweet intonations the mysteries of iamblichus or pontius or reciting homer in the greek or pindar while the walls of the old grey friars re-echoed to the accents of the inspired charity boy it is exceedingly important that as we read a coleridge we should constantly remember what an archangel he was in the eyes of his contemporaries Christabel and kubla khan we could read no doubt in perfect enjoyment even if we did not know the author's name for the rest there is so much flagging of wing both in his verse and in his prose that if we did not remind ourselves what flights he was born to take we might persuade ourselves at times that there was little in his work but the dull flappings and slitherings of a penguin his genius is intermittent and comes arbitrarily to an end he is inspired only in fragments and amphorisms he was all but incapable of writing a complete book or a complete poem at a high level 
his irresponsibility as an author is described in that sentence in which he says i have laid too many eggs in the hot sands of this wilderness the world with ostrich carelessness and ostrich oblivion his literary plans had a ludicrous way of breaking down it was characteristic of him that in eighteen seventeen when he projected a complete edition of his poems under the title sibylline leaves he omitted to publish volume one and published only volume two he would announce a lecture on milton and then give his audience a very eloquent and popular discourse on the general character of shakespeare his two finest poems he never finished he wrote not by an act of the will but according to the wind and when the wind dropped he came to earth it was as though he could soar but was unable to fly it is this that differentiates him from other great poets or critics none of them has left such a record of unfulfilled purposes it is not that he did not get through an enormous amount of work but that like the revellers in mr chesterton's poem he went to birmingham by way of beachy head and in the end he did not get to birmingham sir arthur quiller couch gives an amusing account of the way in which biographia literaria came to be written originally in eighteen fifteen it was conceived as a preface to be done in two or at farthest three days to a collection of some scattered and manuscript poems two months later the plan had changed coleridge was now busy on a preface to an autographia literaria sketches of my literary life and opinions this in turn developed into a full account raisonne of the controversy concerning wordsworth's poems and theory with a disquisition on the powers of association and on the generic difference between the fancy and the imagination this ran to such a length that he decided not to use it as a preface but to amplify it into a work in three volumes he succeeded in writing the first volume but he found himself unable to fill the second then as the volume obstinately remained too small he tossed in satyrane an epistolary account of his wanderings in germany topped with a critique of a bad play and gave the whole painfully to the world in july eighteen seventeen it is one of the ironies of literary history that coleridge the censor of the incongruous in literature the vindicator of the formal purpose as opposed to the haphazard inspiration of the greatest of writers a missionary of the shaping imagination should himself have given us in his greatest book of criticism an incongruous haphazard and shapeless jumble it is but another proof of the fact that while talent cannot safely ignore what is called technique genius almost can coleridge in spite of his formlessness remains the wisest man who ever spoke in english about literature his place is that of an oracle among controversialists even so biographia literaria is a disappointing book it is the porch but it is not the temple it may be that 
in literary criticism there can be no temple literary criticism is in its nature largely an incitement to enter a hint of the treasures that are to be found within persons who seek rest in literary orthodoxy are always hoping to discover written upon the walls of the porch the ten commandments of good writing it is extremely easy to invent ten such commandments it was done in the age of racine and in the age of pope but the wise critic knows that in literature the rules are less important than the inner light hence criticism at its highest is not a theorist's attempt to impose iron laws on writers it is an attempt to capture the secret of that inner light and of those who possess it and to communicate it to others it is also an attempt to define the conditions in which the inner light has most happily manifested itself and to judge new writers of promise according to the measure in which they have been true to the spirit though not necessarily to the technicalities of the great tradition criticism then is not the roman father of good writing it is the disciple and missionary of good writing the end of criticism is less law-giving than conversion it teaches not the legalities but the love of literature biographia literaria does this in its most admirable parts by interesting us in coleridge's own literary beginnings by emphasizing the strong sweetness of great poets in contrast to the petty animosities of little ones by pointing out the signs of the miracle of genius in the young shakespeare and by disengaging the true genius of wordsworth from a hundred extravagances of theory and practice coleridge's remarks on the irritability of minor poets men of undoubted talents but not of genius whose tempers are rendered yet more irritable by their desire to appear men of genius should be written up on the study walls of every one commencing author his description too of this period as this age of personality this age of literary and political gossiping when the meanest insects are worshipped with sort of egyptian superstition if only the brainless head be atoned for by the sting of personal malignity in the tail conveys a warning to writers that is not of an age but for all time coleridge may have exaggerated the manly hilarity and evenness and sweetness of temper of men of genius but there is no denying that the smaller the genius the greater is the spite of wounded self-love experience informs us as coleridge says that the first defence of weak minds is to recriminate as for coleridge's great service to wordsworth's fame it was that of a gold washer he cleansed it from all that was false in wordsworth's reaction both in theory and in practice against poetic diction coleridge pointed out that wordsworth had misunderstood the ultimate objections to eighteenth-century verse the valid objection to a great deal of eighteenth-century verse was not he showed that it was written in language different from that of prose but that it consisted of translations of prose thoughts into poetic language coleridge put it still more strongly indeed 
when he said that the language from pope's translation of homer to darwin's temple of nature may notwithstanding some illustrious exceptions be too faithfully characterized as claiming to be poetical for no better reason than that it would be intolerable in conversation or in prose wordsworth unfortunately in protesting against the mere tritius garb of mean thoughts wished to deny verse its more splendid clothing altogether if we accepted his theories we should have to condemn his ode the greatest of his sonnets and as coleridge put it two-thirds at least of the marked beauties of his poetry the truth is wordsworth created an engine that was in danger of destroying not only pope but himself coleridge destroyed the engine and so helped to save wordsworth coleridge may in his turn have gone too far in dividing language into three groups language peculiar to poetry language peculiar to prose and language common to both though there is much to be said for the division but his jealousy for the great tradition in language was the jealousy of a sound critic language he declared is the armory of the human mind and at once contains the trophies of its past and the weapons of its future conquests he himself wrote idly enough at times he did not shrink from the phrase literary man abominated by mr burrell but he rises in sentence after sentence into the great manner as when he declares no man was ever yet a great poet without being at the same time a profound philosopher for poetry is the blossom and the fragrancy of all human knowledge human thoughts human passions emotions language how excellently again he describes wordsworth's early aim as being to give the charm of novelty to things of every day and to excite a feeling analogous to the supernatural by awakening the mind's attention from the lethargy of custom and directing it to the loveliness and the wonders of the world before us he explains wordsworth's gift more fully in another passage it was the union of deep feeling with profound thought the fine balance of truth in observing with the imaginative faculty in modifying the objects observed and above all the original gift of spreading the tone the atmosphere and with it the depth and height of the ideal world around forms incidents and situations of which for the common view custom had bedimmed all the lustre had dried up the sparkle and the dewdrops coleridge's censures on wordsworth on the other hand such as that on the daffodil may not all be endorsed by us to-day but in the mass they have the insight of genius as when he condemns the approximation to what might be called mental bombast as distinguished from verbal his quotations of great passages again are the very flower of good criticism mr george sampson's editorial selection from biographia literaria and his pleasant as well as instructive notes give one a new pleasure in re-reading this classic of critical literature 
the quali quari quidative chapters have been removed and wordsworth's revolutionary prefaces and essays given in their place in its new form biographia literaria may not be the best book that could be written but there is good reason for believing that it is the best book that has been written on poetry in the english tongue end of section twenty